Hello, and welcome back to the Glossy Week in Review podcast. I'm your host, senior fashion reporter Danny Parisi, and I'm here with our international reporter, Zofia Zviglinska. How's it going, Zofia? Yeah, great. Great to be on again. Yeah, thanks for being here. Um, we've got a fun episode. We're going to be talking about some of the info that came out of LVMH's earnings call earlier this week. Um, we will talk about Mattel's president uh, leaving to join Gap as their new CEO right in the midst of Barbie mania. Um, and then finally, we're going to talk about Sheehan being sued by like three different people at once, um, which you wrote about, Sophia. So I will be uh, grilling you on what exactly that means. But let's start with LVMH. So like I said, they had their earnings this week. And I thought it was very it was very funny because there were all these headlines that are like, ooh, like a slowdown at LVMH, like, ooh, it's not, it's not so good. But it's like they were growing like 20% per quarter for like years, and then they had one quarter of like 19% or something. It's like the smallest possible slowdown for this like gigantic company that's just still completely dominating. So it's but it's kind of funny that like growth going up, even huge growth is like normal. And the slightest bit going down is like, uh, you know, suddenly it's like the trend is changing or whatever. I don't think the trend is really changing. But um, I did think it was interesting there that their US sales were declining, like actually like negative, like only 1% or whatever, not not huge. But uh, everywhere else, it was just still growing, but slower, whereas the US, it actually was like less than before. Um, what do you think is is driving that? Like we've talked a lot about luxury sales going up and down depending on where you are, whether you're in the UK or in China. Um, I think we've talked even just about the US as well. Um, what's your what's your take on that, Zofia? I mean, I think that it's still just the aspirational shopper is just not there anymore. Um, you know, like there's been so many announcements um, regarding you know the Fed's interest hikes again. Like there's reasons that customers are kind of not willing to spend on big ticket items unless they can afford to do so with their discretionary income. I think it's just something that isn't a priority right now. Um, and we're still in that period where I guess most people are, you know, within a kind of financial difficulty and until either, you know, wages rise or the rates go down, um, chances are that that aspirational shopper will not be coming back and will instead redirect um, their discretionary income towards, you know, things that cost a lot less, basically. Yeah, I, I think um, LVMH's CEO, Jean-Jacques Guioni, I think even said something about that in the earnings call about um, a lot of their, that slowdown was attributed to less entry-level spending. Um, you know, people buying the, the lowest end of LVMH goods, while the people who are buying like their leather goods and the, you know, the super expensive stuff are still there. So, you know, we, like I said, we've talked about this a lot, but it definitely feels like the kind of like the customer who could just barely, if they stretch, you know, afford some of these brands is no longer able to do that because they're stretched thin already. Whereas the people who could comfortably, you know, shop LVMH stuff all the time are still just doing that. Um, there also was uh, the mention of U.S. customers traveling to Europe to shop in the summer, which I don't think happens vice versa. You know, I don't think a lot of Europeans are like summering in Boise, Idaho or something. Um, but I don't know. You're you're a European. Is that true? Do people like go to the U.S. for the summer? I imagine they'd go rather somewhere a little more tropical or something. I don't know. 
Um, I think probably Canada more than the US. But, you know, you do get the occasional people who want to go on the US road trip in the summer. Um, I think it's just the other way around is far more attractive because you've got so many more, you know, historical destinations and great food. And, you know, in terms of LVMH, I'm sure that there's been a lot of interest in European cosmetics. The prices here sometimes can be lower. Um, mm. So that could also factor into the purchases. I think it's just, it's probably not a great time to be traveling in Europe right now. There's been some severe storms across Italy, Switzerland, mm. um, and France. So I, I pity all the US customers who've decided to make this year the time for their European break. Yeah. How has the temperature been in London this summer? Oh, it's raining. It is raining oh, okay. right now. It's been raining consistently for the last week. Well, that's pretty normal though, right? Yeah, definitely. I'm hoping it will pick up a little bit later. Yeah. Um, last thing on LVMH that I also want to mention, I, I think um, our editor Jill is writing something about this this week, but uh, they mentioned on the call, LVMH, that they they seem to me slightly apologetic about their marketing spend. Um, they talked about how the really high advertising costs ate into profitability just a little bit, but enough that they they seemed a little contrite or a, or a little like well there was a lot to advertise so that's why we spent so much they they mentioned the Pharrell show specifically as something that you know it comes with a big cost to do something that extravagant um, I think they were indicating maybe pulling back a little bit on the wild wild advertising spend but that's also like how they got to be LVMH is by you know being everywhere and building this brand and that doesn't happen cheaply or free you know so um did you did you have any thoughts on that like i, I feel like they must spend they, they, they spend a ridiculous amount of money on advertising but that is like part of the strategy um it seems like they might be pulling back on that a little bit though yeah i think that they said that they it might be going down but i'm not sure if it actually will just because of the momentum upkeep that they would need to have after the pharrell show i think that you know the the coming shows will be very indicative of whether they can keep that up or not. And, and my guess is that advertising will play a big role in that. But it's not the only thing, actually, that um, was interesting in the earnings. I did trawl through them a bit as well. Um, and the other thing I would say is that they they said that they're buying up more of their retail locations as opposed to renting which was like a really key point. And I think it's something that a lot of companies, especially in the luxury space, are doing right now to get more control over, you know, their store locations. Also, like there's some factory ownership um, in terms of their supply chain. So I think that was kind of like the big thing for me um, and something that I don't think a lot of people mentioned. Yeah, that's a good point. And they're definitely a company, like I, I remember talking about this a while ago when Walmart was buying their own cargo ships to to ship their stuff. And it's like, yeah, that's a cost-saving thing, but only Walmart can do that or only, you know, a giant company that can just buy, you know. So LVMH is, that that's a great strategy, I think, like to just buy your store outright and then, you know, or buy your building outright and then not have to deal with landlords because you'll be your own landlord is like, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, we should just do that. Except you have to be LVMH to do that because that's, you know, a huge up, <laughs> a huge upfront cost. Um, it does seem like they have the leeway just because they've got so much cash to do things like that. And maybe a smaller brand or a smaller company, especially if you've got shareholders, would really balk at the idea of spending a huge amount, whether it's advertising or buying something like that outright, uh, just because it it doesn't 
always give you an immediate return. You know, like mm-hmm. renting is cheaper in the short term than buying, but buying is better in the long term because, you know, so that that's, you know, that's my thought on that is that they're capable of doing that, but um, I don't think every brand is. Okay, let's move on to our second topic, which is Mattel's president, Richard Dixon, uh, was announced as joining Gap as their new CEO uh, this week. Um, he's starting at the end of August and replacing Sonia Singal, who left, I think, last year. So they've been about a year without a CEO. Um, obviously, it is like very fortuitous time for Mattel. Barbie is like absolutely humongous. Um, I don't know if it's like this in the UK, Zofia, but I went and saw a movie recently, not Barbie, but the theater was absolutely packed, like the busiest I've seen it since the pandemic and everyone was wearing pink. It was like very obvious what movie they were going to. So it's <laughs> it's so huge. We can talk about the Gap, you know, stuff in just one second, but as a quick Barbie aside, is that happening in the UK too? Is it as huge there as it seems to be here? Yeah, it definitely is. And just the kind of whole host of making it an event, just going to see the film. I think that that's something that I haven't seen in a really long time. And while I haven't seen the film yet, I'm sure that, you know, the UK cinemas are packed. I know that there's been a lot of viewings that have been sold out um, in my area. Yeah, I actually live right around the corner from a movie theater. And there's just like, so I see people dressed in pink, all the time now, like in the last week, there's been so much pink around and it kind of took me a couple of days before I realized like, oh, they're all going to the movie theater. Um, so yeah, Richard Dixon was the president of Mattel and now he's going to be the CEO of Gap. And I think Gap is hoping he can bring some of that magic over to the apparel side. Um, they're, like I mentioned, they had no CEO for I think around a year and, and now he's going to be taking over that role. So it's actually the second big executive appointment at Gap because they also recently announced the appointment of Chris Blakesley as the new CEO of Athleta. Um, it seems like they're in a little bit of a shakeup period, Gap. They're, you know, trying to get back some of the market share that they've lost over the years. Um, uh, obviously, like I said, they're hoping that Richard Dixon can bring some of that Barbie magic to them. What do you think? Do you think that's possible like is that going to translate like i feel like we've we talk on this podcast sometimes the companies bring in a new designer or a new executive and they're just like hoping that you know everything will turn around instantly and then they usually kind of don't get uh, a lot of leeway to actually change things like i, I don't know what, what do you think do you do you think that that's going to work or i don't know yeah i mean for me it's it's a little bit of like a bizarre appointment i think you know, Dixon is coming from the consumer space, but it's a very different market compared to what Gap is doing with fashion. Um, and typically when, you know, companies are looking to change their direction or kind of refresh, they bring in young designers or someone to kind of give that creative identity to the brand. Whereas this, and I think both of these appointments um, are kind of more geared at the C-suite or executive level. I'm not quite sure what that will bring to Gap, whether that is more kind of commercialization of its product, uh, a wider distribution, like what is it exactly that Dixon will be bringing um, to the company that, you know, would kind of pull it out of the situation more than, say, a creative director who can kind of take that brand and make it cool again. Yeah, actually, I had a thought about this, which is I think the play might be that they, they're they hoping that Dixon can be the guy to find those that cool creative director or cool designer, whoever, mm-hmm. um, to take over. Like, I, 
I remember reading a, an article in Business of Fashion a, maybe a year or two ago that I really thought was good and, and agreed with, which was comparing the strategies of J. Crew and Gap and and kind of talking about how J. Crew was doing better because, or that their strategy was working better because they were, you know, picking really cool people like Olympia Gallo and Brendan Babbitzine to sort of revitalize the brand. Um, and I think that with Mattel and Barbie, I think part of the reason that's so huge is because, not because of any executive person, but because of Greta Gerwig, like the, the talent, the creative person that they picked and gave free reign to like do something really interesting with the the IP, you know, to talk like a, a suit for a second. Um, that's like was why that was successful. They picked someone interesting and just let them do what they want. So I'm wondering if Gap's, the, the board over there is thinking that we'll hire Dixon, who is like not the most, you know, he's not the face. He's not the, the super, you know, exciting young talent like Greta Gerwig or something, but he could be the guy who could pick someone like that um, for them who could then revitalize the brand. That's that's just my theory. I haven't said anything like that, but that's that's what I was thinking. Um, what, what do you think of that? I mean, anecdotally, and I'm not 100% sure if this is true, but I think that Margot Robbie was the one who was advocating for um, Greta Gerwig to mm. be directing the film, in which case I think that Dixon might have not had as much of a role to actually sourcing um, the, mm. the talent here. Um, I was just thinking in terms of his appointment, it might also just be kind of more wider or deeper um, business issues that he might be able to sort out in terms of streamlining the operation to make it as efficient as, you know, the the Barbie rollout has been over the last year and possibly something in marketing as well, because that was, you know, something that really took off um, over the last couple of months. Yeah, I, I was thinking that too when you said that he's, you know, he's coming from a very different type of company and it's like, they're both consumer products like toys and apparel. Um, but I do think it's interesting that the the business is, is very like branding focused fashion, mm -hmm. I mean. Um, and so it's kind of like anyone who has experience with building a brand, like I think can translate some of those skills. So yeah, the Barbie marketing onslaught has been insane and, and seemingly pretty successful. So that could be another, you know, reason that why they're interested in him. Um, cool. Let's move on to our final topic, which is uh, I originally pitched it to you, Sophia, as about H&M suing Sheehan, but then I realized that Sheehan is being sued by multiple people right now. Um, so there, if I correct me, if I've got this, if I've got this wrong, I think Sheehan, there's being, they're being sued by H&M for copyright infringement. They're separately being sued by a group of three designers for allegedly a regular pattern of copyright infringement, and then finally by fellow fast fashion company Timu for allegedly like asking factories in China to sign really intense exclusivity agreements and curbing competition and that kind of stuff. Is that is that all right? Yeah, that's basically it. The, the one thing that I would point out is that the three designers um, who brought forward their suit they're not bringing it forward as a standard copyright suit. They're bringing it in the form of a RICO suit. So it's essentially a criminal organization racketeering suit, mm. um, which just elevates that suit to a much higher level. And also, Temi's also um, suing Sheehan for allegedly working with influencers to um, divert attention from their products, which mm. again, really weird. It seems like there's a lot of competition in that space. Um, and yeah, Sheehan is 
definitely facing the the kind of legal onslaught right now. Obviously, as such a big company, I think it's recently been valued at 66 billion. Um, I don't think there's been wow. a bigger evaluation than that um, since the IPO news um, and the valuation came down a little bit. But it basically means that at the moment, those lawsuits, I think, will not have a big dent unless some of them get passed um, slash agreed to. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, they put out several thousand new styles every day, which is so insane. That number always boggles my mind when I think about it. And I know that they have countered some criticism by being like, oh, well, we only make a small amount of each or whatever. But still, 6,000 new products, like new styles every single day is unbelievable to me. I feel like at that point, like copying somebody is just inevitable. Like, I don't even know how you source or come up with 6,000 completely original ideas every single day. I mean, I can barely come up with one original idea a day. And, you know, that's, that's <laughs> so, that's it. it. It's like, doesn't surprise me that there's probably, there's probably a lot of copyright infringement and, you know, cutting corners that happens when you're doing that many new styles every single day. It's like, I can't even imagine how that's sustainable. Um, so you wrote a story about this this week, and I will uh, direct everybody to go read your story for some more in-depth uh, analysis of this whole situation. But it really does, like you say, feel like they're under siege a little bit because there was also, um, they were being invested, she and I mean, being investigated by U.S. authorities for, you know, potentially skirting around tariffs because the product that they're shipping into the U.S. is so cheap that it kind of doesn't meet the uh, threshold for having to pay tariffs and whether that's fair and stuff like that. It just feels like there's a lot of skepticism and scrutiny on Shein right now, both in the U.S., but also globally. Um, you know, H&M is a European company. Timu is a Chinese company. So it feels like it's not just coming from the U.S. There's a lot of... Uh, a lot of people, I mean, they're a humongous, humongous company, so it's they deserve a lot of scrutiny. I think any large company does. But yeah, do you do you feel like there's a, a lot of particular attention being paid to Xi'an right now? I think so. I mean, obviously, there's been a number of copycat sites which have sprung up as a result of Xi'an's success, which basically copy its model um, and work off, you know, a similar kind of distribution system where they have very kind of low value packages um, entering international markets like the US, which allows them to avoid paying tariffs, um, which they would have typically have to do if those packages were compiled together into one bigger one, for example. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, Xi'an has been the subject of multiple kind of issues um, and allegedly had a lot of involvement um, with kind of bad actors around sustainable production, um, around the influencer trip that happened last month, um, you know, where they were shown a factory. Um, but as to whether that is something that is actually a part of Xi'an's supply chain still remains to be seen. Um, and the influencers themselves have since either deleted or retracted the videos that they took um, at the facility just because the backlash was so big. Um, I think that there's still a lot of backlash from maybe older customers around, you know, how sustainable is Shein, but granted its growth um, and popularity with, you know, younger customers and Gen Z, I think it still remains to be seen whether this will be enough to kind of take it down. 
Mm. Um, or whether it will hurt it at all, or whether that will come from, you know, US legislators um, who might think about either the sustainability measures or the competition issues that are happening because of these um, inbound um, sales, I guess, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you've written before, and we've talked before about some of the ways that Sheehan has tried to uh, assuage some of those concerns like they have a new head of sustainability or something, or they, you know, like we're reducing our emissions by 2% in the next 30 years or something like that. Um, and I feel like some of those things can be a little bit like to me, just read as like trying to alleviate some pressure by, you know, doing small little PR kind of things or like the influencer trip. It's They're clearly aware that there's a lot of uh, scrutiny and a lot of criticism of their practices and they want to kind of like find whatever ways they can to sort of divert some of that pressure off of them. Um, do you think that's working at all? Like did the the influencer trip, like you said, there was a huge backlash to that, but like, do you think anybody was convinced by that or when they say, when they put out new sustainability goals and we're like, we're changing our deal. Is that, you know, do you think anybody buys that really? No, I don't think so. I think that, you know, their supply chain is so obscure and so little is kind of known about it. The, the few kind of people who have managed to get on the ground um, and film documentaries about it have been, I guess, the closest to the source in terms of anything else going on, whether that's, you know, appointing that head of sustainability or whether it's putting out sustainability reports. I think that or even um, launching that resale platform. Like these are all kind of measures that essentially tiptoe around the bigger issue, which is overproduction um, and mm. kind of insane scale um, at yep. very, very low cost and also incorporating, um, you know, kind of dark strategies like gamification in a kind of negative way um, to conduct an e-commerce business, um, which essentially has meant that it's grown to such huge proportions, um, mainly fueled by people who are not aware of these strategies um, and are kind of unwittingly participating in them. Yeah, I think that when you say tiptoeing around the main issue of overproduction, I feel like that's exactly right. I, I think I've said before, it, it not just Shein, but it drives me a little crazy when a company will get really huge on pretty unethical practices and then say like, well, we're we're pledging to reduce our unethical practices by 5% or whatever. Like these really like long-term slow. And it's like, you you were the one who got to these practices in the first place. Like you could have reduced it by 100% by just not doing it. But, you know, that's not how to get, that's not how you get valued at $66 billion. You get valued at $66 billion by like, doing the most unethical stuff imaginable. Um, anyway, that's a side note, but I just feel like, you know, when you said there is a main issue, which is they're making 6,000 new styles a day, which is ridiculous. There's probably no way to make that actually sustainable. Um, but there's lots of little things you can do around the margins of we're changing the packaging to be slightly more, you know, that makes it look like progress mm. is happening. Again, not just Shein. I think a lot of big companies do stuff like this. They they skirt around the main issues because the main issues are also what makes them money. And then they find little things that, on the side that they can do that make it look like, you know, more sustainable practices are being done, even if like the big main thing is just still sitting there untouched. Mm. Uh, anyway, that's just my tangent on that kind of stuff. <laughs> <You have> <laughs> no, I completely agree with you. I think that, you know, there's 
there's so many big companies out there right now who are essentially producing things in a very similar way. Maybe they might not have quite as big a distribution, um, but it will still be producing way too many things for, you know, for one, for what the customer is actually ordering. Like there's been pretty much zero movement with big companies around made to order. That's mostly coming mm-hmm. from small D2C brands. Um, even though, you know, that in itself would reduce the the kind of number of items out there by such a big amount. And also I think that, you know, there's, there was an investigation um, in this week, I can't remember who it was by, but um, there was tags basically placed in garments um, and who that went through typical kind of recycling boxes that are put through, um, you know, big brands. And most of the items that <clears throat> they followed, because obviously they were tracking them through multiple countries, ended up, you know, either getting destroyed or put into waste the same way. So again, seeing all of these side measures, like it's quite obvious that they're not working um, yeah. and kind of focusing on the main issue would probably be a much better solution overall. Yeah, and and last thing I'll say is one area that does give me confidence is I think resale is a both like a big thing that's impactful and a lot of brands are doing it. I, you know, like we're mm-hmm. saying, there's a lot of things where there's things that aren't that impactful, but every brand is doing it because it's not that big a deal. And then there's things that are impactful and no one's doing it because it would impact like, you know, profitability in the bottom line too much. Resale is one that to me feels like it's genuinely has a big impact and a lot of brands are interested in doing it and there is movement. So, you know, and then there's mm-hmm. lots of other stuff. There's, you know, new materials coming out and that are more sustainable, new new supply chain practices. Like there's progress being made all the time. But um, yeah, I think there's definitely big things that are just sitting there like made to order and just not, no one's like really taking advantage, even though that would have a huge impact, like you say, a positive impact on the whole industry's emissions. Um, Let's end it there. I know we could we could talk all day about this kind of stuff, um, but this was such a great episode. Thank you for being here, Zofia. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be on. For those of you listening at home, don't forget to give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to this. That helps us out a ton. And don't forget to subscribe to The Glossy Podcast to hear interviews with industry insiders every Wednesday and weekend review episodes every Friday. So until the next time, thank you for listening. Thank you.